Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity, titled Immunosenescence and Inflammaging, Role of Aging as a Risk Factor for Severe COVID-19, is brought to you by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and the American Thoracic Society, and is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Before starting this activity, Please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to the program, Rapidly Changing COVID-19, The Role of Monoclonal Antibodies. I'm Paul Auerter. I'm the Clinical Director for Infectious Diseases, and also the Sherilyn and Ken Fisher Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm delighted that Dr. Tim Albertson is joining. Uh, Tim? Yeah, hi, Paul. I'm Tim Albertson, uh, Chair of Internal Medicine at the University of California, Davis in Sacramento. And I'm a pulmonary critical care physician who uh, has been working with uh, COVID patients for uh, now two and a half years. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Certainly uh, the voice of experience in terms of dealing with the especially ill uh, during the pandemic. This part of the program is going to focus on immune senescence, but also uh, explore another concept called inflammagene. And the idea here is to sort of review the role of aging as a risk factor for severe COVID-19. I think we're all familiar with the age gradient as perhaps the biggest risk factor uh, for our patients for experiencing severe COVID-19. So the learning objectives are three, again, to uh, explain immune senescence. The other is to uh, examine the impact of inflammaging in COVID-19. And the last is to also assess the role of hyperinflammation in more severe disease. Our agenda uh, will include some uh, general uh, introduction of concepts regarding SARS-CoV-2 and ARDS and explore sort of the dynamic spectrum that some patients experience with COVID-19 in terms of the pathophysiology, as well as age-related issues regarding to the immune response. And then we'll go through a summary as well. Now, in terms of the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, uh, this is a, a virus that has turned out to be the most highly pathogenic of the coronaviruses. Of course, we've had experience with SARS-CoV-1, which honestly is probably more pathogenic on a mortality basis, but wasn't as transmissible as this particular virus, and we'll explore that as well. Um, they both belong to a group of lineage B coronaviruses that um, utilize the spike protein of the virus, and it harnesses it to the ACE2 receptor, which is broadly present in many organs, especially the lung. And this facilitates the entry along with a uh, serine protease called TMPRSS2, which uh, is important to allow cleavage uh, of the uh, spike to allow viral entry 
uh, into the cell. Overall, uh, the infection progresses in many people with increased levels of inflammatory mediators. Uh, and of course, uh, these uh, end up being the way the body helps handle viral infections of this type. And after initial infection in uh, the respiratory tract, or perhaps even in the gut, there's a variety of uh, factors that have to do with the early so-called innate immune system, uh, but also other components that organize macrophages, neutrophils, and T cells. Uh, subsequently, especially if there's a good generation of an innate immune response and fast facilitation of neutralizing antibodies, there's often viral clearance. Uh, with little in the way to show for anything uh, in terms of severe infection. However, uh, in certain uh, patients, especially with the well-acknowledged now risk factors for COVID-19, such as age, um, diabetes, uh, heart failure, and uh, morbid obesity, and so on, all these seem to conspire to predispose the patient to experience hyperinflammation, which is uh, uh, still a complex and not completely understood scenario. And uh, this particular uh, aspect may have to do with large amounts of virus present, as well as triggering certain immune uh, uh, factors, such as high levels of interleukin-2, uh, 10, also GMCSF, and others uh, that trigger intense inflammation. There are a number of risk factors, as we said, with the age gradient, really the most important, but certainly at least earlier in the pandemic, uh, older men and men with comorbidities seem to be more at risk than women. And especially uh, troublesome were patients that really evolved into a picture that looked like there was significant lung injury and uh, ARDS often complicated by multi-organ system dysfunction. And I wanted to ask Tim, you know, certainly we saw this earlier in the pandemic with the initial uh, viruses that we saw in 2020 through the Delta, which is perhaps maybe the most pathogenic, but then certainly with Omicron, including uh, the initial Omicron uh, virus, but now we, even with subvariants, we haven't quite seen the toll. And of course, uh, many people have already been infected and have acquired immunity, or they've been immunized and boosted. Uh, are you only seeing un-immunized uh, people or people that have no history of COVID-19 in your unit, or, or, or is it people that really just don't have great immune responses like solid organ transplant? Uh, given the risk factors that we know, who, who are you seeing now that still lands in the ICU? Yeah, about uh, only about uh, a quarter of the patients admitted now even get close to the ICU. The vast majority are uh, mild cases that are admitted for other reasons or uh, asymptomatic. Um, but those patients that are the sickest who come in with severe disease or moderate to severe disease tend to be under vaccinated or incompletely vaccinated. We do see a few breakthroughs, but the vast majority are um not vaccinated or are immunosuppressed. 
Yeah. So so even if you have someone that's 85, but they're uh, uh, may have some risk factors, but they're not immune suppressed, they've been immunized, for example, uh, and perhaps boosted once or twice. You're not seeing those people in the ICU. It's only really if you think they don't have uh, good immune response uh, uh, because of maybe medication or immune deficiency or uh, so on. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, certainly uh, uh, a, an important uh, concept as certainly a large number of people remain unimmunized and, and especially uh, may not have yet experienced any coronavirus infection in this regard. The uh, intense inflammation tends to cause other factors that could um, activate uh, components within the endothelium that you might see consumption issues, especially resulting in thrombocytopenia. Uh, bone marrow uh, often is suppressed because of uh, inflammatory factors, and you uh, will see lower white blood cell counts as well uh, with lack of production and minor anemia, uh, and also elevated liver function tests, especially in people that are more severely ill. Imaging findings are interesting, and initially there is very characteristic findings. In fact, before testing was developed in China, the CT was the method of diagnosing COVID at that time. If you had ground glass uh, infiltrates, as you see on the left, um, that was sufficient in the setting of, you know, high community rates of infection to secure a diagnosis. And indeed, um, many of our radiologists on um, a CT would uh, suggest COVID-19 as a diagnosis in the thick of the pandemic. But, you know, when I'm talking with my radiologists now, um, they rarely see this. And, of course, we're still getting a lot of CTs or uh, CTAs to look for pulmonary emboli, and we're just seeing much less. And I, I'm interested, Tim, in uh, your perspective on the West Coast. I'm an East Coast person. Um, you know, of course, uh, these uh, variants tend to evolve differently in uh, different areas, but uh, basically we end up with the same. Uh, what's been your experience seeing the patients that, um, you know, that you're reviewing scans perhaps on the floor rather than the ICU? Yeah, we still see the ground glass opacifications, but um, more and more the ones who are actually making it to the ICU, and there's just not that many of them relative to the peak, um, have diffuse ARDS more typical ARDS-type findings, um, not the patchy. Yeah, not the patchy stuff that you might see before they hit that, yeah. And and don't forget, of course, there's always secondary uh, infections that uh, patients may experience. Um, certainly, um, bacterial pneumonia, we saw much more fungal disease, I would say, complicating. Um, certainly, there are much greater numbers in the hospital, so that's something we still consider but um, perhaps not as commonly. In terms of the pathophysiology, which this talk is focused on, uh, one of the key aspects of coronaviruses are that it's a positive sense single-strand RNA. And RNA that's single, especially when it becomes double-stranded, is part of its replicative nature in order to make more RNA. That double-strand ends up activating um, uh, danger signals uh, in hosts 
such that uh, you have a generation of that early phase innate immune responses. So that's certainly very important. And we've already talked about how the virus um, uh, is a beta uh, coronavirus, uh, and uh, there are larger uh, numbers in the genera that uh, also infect animals. In fact, it's such a widely distributed virus in animals, especially the beta coronaviruses in bats, and certain warm-blooded uh, mammals, and so on, um, that, uh, you know, hopes of uh, eradicating this as we've seen the virus jump to animals, uh, including dogs and deer and so on, I don't think there'll be much hopes of uh, at all. People have given up on the concept of any eradication. There will likely be continued mutations, important points that we'll be discussing in other segments of this uh, series. Like any virus, the virus goes through a life cycle. Uh, remember, viruses are not alive. Uh, we've all learned that in medical school. Uh, they uh, uh, hijack host cells in order to make new viral components and make new virus. And uh, almost all viruses enter by uh, essentially co-opting normal uh, uh, host components uh, and entering through um, what's a receptor but would be otherwise a normal protein like ACE2 uh, and then enters through endocytosis or membrane fusion um, and then uh, hopefully makes its way into either the cytoplasm um, um, or for DNA viruses into the nucleus uh, for replication. Um, in terms of uh, making uh, new proteins, there's both structural and non-structural proteins. Both need to be made by the host cell. They're then assembled and subsequently released. This particular viral life cycle is shown in this uh, cartoon uh, where viruses will attach to ACE2 receptors and then uh, go through a, a fusion process, uncoat, um, and you can see the um, RNA as well as structural and non-structural proteins being translated. Um, essentially important is a uh, protease that is encoded that will uh, cleave a polyprotein. This is why neuromtrelivir, ritonavir, also known as Paxilvid, uh, has its great impact here uh, on preventing that polyprotein cleavage. Uh, this then goes through the Golgi apparatus where uh, proteins are made. There's essentially assemble, assembly, uh, budding, and subsequent release. The uh, coronaviruses have four structural proteins. I think everyone is familiar with the spike protein. The spike protein uh, serves to uh, facilitate attachment into host cells. And of course, this is where all the immune pressure is, um, why the virus continues to evolve and try to avoid existing neutralizing antibodies because they will bind to the spike protein. Uh, there's also membrane and envelope components uh, vital for forming the membrane structure. Um, along with the nucleocapsid, uh, which is important for helping to organize the RNA. The spike protein is an interesting um, uh, a protein. It's a transmembrane protein, but is a trimeric uh, glycoprotein. And uh, uh, virologists will talk about the protein actually moving into a 
uh, up and down phase. And uh, many of the changes to the spike protein cause the virus to be more in the down phase, which means it's less exposed or, or evades uh, neutralizing antibodies. And so uh, we see this uh, pretty repeatedly and indeed um, existing immunity, whether you've had acquired immunity uh, from uh, infection or uh, immunization uh, with Uh, especially the mRNA vaccines, that immune pressure is such that uh, is driving uh, this RNA virus. And remember, RNA viruses um, uh, have uh, their RNA polymerase is not quite as uh, with the fidelity of DNA polymerases. So there's often uh, introduction mutations um, that essentially uh, most of them uh, render just uh, a virus that's not able to be translated or productive, but just by sheer numbers of infection. uh, Of course, some actually uh, end up being positive mutations facilitating even uh, more infection. And indeed, the spike protein itself, um, what's happened with each of these subsequent variants and subvariants are it's become more transmissible because it ends up binding more tightly to ACE2 receptors. So uh, it's actually able to enter more and more cells uh, and uh, uh, essentially cause productive infection. So that's why we're seeing uh, as many infections as we do now. And of course, we're doing a lot of home testing. We don't, we're not really getting a true picture of the pandemic at the moment. And certainly, I think many of you know family, friends, all of whom, as the Omicron subvariants are evolving, that um, we're seeing more and more uh, infections that, that people are not seeking hospitalization and so on. So uh, the ACE2 receptor we've already talked about is being very uh, present in the lung, but is also in the heart, uh, one of the reasons why you might see myocarditis. Um, gut, certainly we see um, uh, GI presentations, uh, uh, less so with kidney and bladder issues, unless if you're in that multi-inflammatory uh, uh, phase uh, and severe illness. So uh, one of the other things which is very interesting is, of course, uh, prompted a whole lot of speculation about the origin of uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the so-called purine cleavage site, which it seems to be unique among uh, uh, coronaviruses and have uh, some have hypothesized that this was introduced in a virology lab rather than acquired uh, through a natural means in animal populations. Uh, but this purine cleavage site is important and one of the reasons why uh, this virus uh, appears to be so well adapted to human infection. Now we're going to sort of segue into immune senescence and inflammagene, which is the central part of our talk today. And immune senescence, as it suggests, uh, describes uh, what happens in the immune system as we get older. And inflammagene talks about how a concept where as we get older, regardless of the excellence of our health, there is uh, increasing amounts of low-grade inflammation that's often subclinical. It doesn't make you feel ill, but will have impact on the immune system as well as organs. 
So it's both of these concepts that are thought to uh, contribute or arise even from uh, conditions that uh, end up being all the risk factors that we tend to see in severe COVID-19. Not only the age gradient that we talked about, but many of the others for which you're familiar. Um, and uh, the other concept is as we get older, um, especially as you head into the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, you, your both innate immune uh, system and so-called adaptive uh, immune uh, response, and that's the antibody-generating component, for example, as well as T cells, just are uh, less um, nimble. They don't respond as fast and often have blunted responses. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we see influenza, uh, even despite immunizations, uh, more commonly in the elderly and why a high-dose uh, influenza vaccine is now recommended uh, for that population over 65 in an effort to try to help stimulate more than standard vaccines some uh, increased responses in antibodies. And uh, this also uh, is why uh, um, pneumonia is often called the captain of death because it is more common in, in advanced ages. And so um, uh, people uh, not only uh, have respond less well to vaccines, but of course to uh, infections of all kinds in that age range. Uh, so uh, the uh, uh, risks, seem to be uh, over 60, although the CDC recently revised uh, that to over 50 as a potential risk factor um, uh, with greater morbidity and mortality. Although, again, uh, this is a bit of a moving concept um, as time goes on uh, in terms of um, whether the uh, evolving uh, variants uh, uh, change the rules in terms of risk factors. Well, can you comment on the pediatric multi-system failure patients and how they fit into that risk factor? Yeah, so uh, I think the pathophysiology for so-called MISC, the multi-system uh, inflammatory syndrome in children, and, and the much less well uh, understood and defined MISA in adults, um, seems to be something that occurs after that initial uh, two to four week illness. And uh, people seem to have a rebound. Uh, you may not find virus. You can see antibodies to the nuclear protein or spike protein if they haven't been immunized. That would suggest they were infected or had an illness two to four weeks earlier. Often it's not severe, but yet they behave uh, as if they're in the middle of a hyperinflammatory syndrome, um, uh, not so much with ARDS initially, but uh, initially there was some confusion and overlap with Kawasaki's disease. Um, certainly, uh, people have tried uh, looking at uh, IVIG, also corticosteroids in the MISC group, um, a lot of experience, especially in New York City. Um, and uh, again, I, I think we're seeing less of this. I'm not a pediatrician. Uh, certainly it's come up um, when the numbers were much higher and we've seen patients, uh, adults uh, represent uh, four to six weeks after uh, a diagnosis and we have not been able to find uh, a secondary pneumonia. They don't respond to antibiotics, so on and so forth. 
Um, we've seen this, uh, what's a little different here, Tim, at least in my experience, of course, you know, you see it more in children. And uh, we've seen it in younger adults. It's not necessarily an older adult situation, although we've also seen it in solid organ transplants, which makes me think that um, there may be some aspects uh, where there's antigenic debris, some um, components of the viral genome that are still present that the host cell starts remanufacturing, triggering the immune response. Of course, none of this, uh, you know, is uh, yeah. uh, very clear. I didn't know, Tim, what's, what, what's your sense in... Well, um, I, I, yeah, uh, I think the same thing, but I, I have heard uh, things like exosomes might be uh, involved and other non-typical cellular components. Um, makes me wonder. Yeah, certainly the whole exosome concept is highly interesting, and how long they persist. Uh, you know, there's technologies now that are looking at exosomes as an easier way to make diagnosis uh, early on instead of antigen tests being more precise and cheaper just because there's so much, there's an abundance of exosomes and secretions and, and perhaps this is what's going on, uh, you know, weeks later. So uh, excellent uh, question and uh, thought there. Now, uh, I don't think anyone is um, surprised by data, at least, of course, this is mostly based on uh, information from earlier phases, you know, certainly the first uh, severe wave of Omicron going back to Delta, Alpha, and so on. But if you're taking uh, children and adolescents um, and young adults as a reference group, as you move on in age, um, the hospitalizations certainly are increased, and certainly death is as well. And uh, uh, deaths in the over 65 group accounted for uh, by far the most deaths uh, in adults, uh, regardless of other risk factors. Now, uh, with immunization, uh, acquired immunity, uh, decreased apparent pathogenicity, of uh, subvariants and the latest subvariants, BA4 and 5, which are now predominant as we're uh, recording this in early July of 2022, don't seem to be any worse um, uh, uh, than uh, they uh, uh, were uh, compared to earlier Omicron subvariants. And that's also been the experience in South Africa where BA4 and BA5 cause a significant wave, but without the severe COVID and hospitalization seen uh, in the earlier Omicron uh, wave. Uh, what, of course, blunts this uh, very much so, we know our um, uh, primary immunization uh, with boosters, especially in the older age groups um, with the new Omicron variants and subvariants, mainly because uh, there's uh, less protection and we know um, immunity in terms of avoiding um, hospitalization and severe COVID-19 wanes after about nine months after last uh, uh, immunization or boosting. In terms of the effects on uh, COVID-19, uh, severe COVID-19, which typically is in that second week of illness, um, uh, you know, uh, can be a little before seven days, but on average, we start seeing problems around day six, seven, eight, nine. Um, early in the pandemic, average hospitalization day was often eight or nine. 
Um, now I think people are more akin to coming to the hospital a little earlier when they're ill. But this is the phase where we see that hyperinflammation. Uh, and uh, IL-6 was all the rage earlier um, with uh, measuring levels. I think we've moved away from that. Uh, but GMCSF also uh, have played central roles, at least in the earlier phases. Uh, and uh, the thought is the immune senescence is one of the main risks, along with the chronic subclinical inflammation from risk factors that drive uh, severe disease in the elderly population. Now, as we dive into the pathophysiology, uh, this comes from a pattern recognition of regulators uh, that uh, the body is organized as a response to danger signals. And uh, essentially, the lack of control often leads to higher uh, viral levels. And what's interesting, and this may be with the subvariants evolving through Omicron, um, we see them binding more to the upper respiratory uh, tract than the lower is perhaps one uh, reason why we're not seeing as much lung disease and hypoxemia and severe illness, despite the fact that people can feel very crummy. Um, certainly I did uh, as a 60-year-old um, early infection, but by uh, day six and seven, I was feeling non-worse, non-the-worse, and um, uh, there's some thoughts maybe because of less amount of virus in the uh, lower respiratory tract. Uh, but uh, the host itself uh, distinguishes and uh, uh, finds unique uh, molecular determinants uh, based on locations. We've already talked about double-stranded RNA is uh, one of the danger signals um, that triggers uh, innate immunity. Uh, this uh, early immune response often is activated by uh, toll-like receptors um, uh, triggered by RNA in endosomes. There's also a number of other factors listed on this slide, which are organized within the uh, cytoplasm of the host virus that uh, can um, uh, recognize viral RNA um, as well and uh, 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 produce uh, cellular damage in an effort to try to clear infection. The immune response we've uh, sort of uh, chatted about, but in terms of what we see clinically in people, um, we'll, we'll see uh, a high viral load often. You'll, you know, if you were to get cycle thresholds, the lower is more concerning. We'll see uh, cycle thresholds only 12, 14, um, sometimes even lower in people completely immunized, uh, and so on. Uh, and we see high, uh, lower viral th uh, uh, cycle thresholds in lower respiratory uh, specimens. Um, there'll be uh, uh, lympho. Uh, Cytopenias, especially um, uh, with reduced uh, natural killer and T cells. And then uh, the elevated cytokines that um, uh, drive uh, much of the inflammatory responses in severe um, COVID disease. Now, um, interferon production, especially uh, gamma, beta, um, those that help control viral infection are reduced as people uh, age, and this is um, 
one of the other thoughts, the key factor is that there's less control of the viral infection. Therefore, there's more virus and more tissues, and therefore more for the adaptive immune system to do, hence the hyperinflammation. This hyperinflammation, um, you know, the number of factors, you know, there's you know, over 150 that have been described as um, being involved in uh, this phase of the disease, along with mast cells, um, all in an effort that uh, are thought to help recognize and clear viral products. And, uh, you know, the, the thought initially is that you might uh, uh, help um, uh, immune uh, response downregulation by using tocilizumab, uh, a uh, anti-IL-6 receptor monoclonal antibody, but this proved to not be very helpful, whereas a very broad uh, anti-inflammatory in the way of dexamethasone seemed to make all the difference early on. And, and Tim, I, I'm just sort of interested, just as we're talking about this pathogenesis in the ICU, were, were, were you someone that ended up using tocilizumab monotherapy early on? And, and have you now found that really it's, um, you know, for those severe patients who are, were using a broad, uh, you know, dexamethasone, but often adding on uh, something like baricitinib to inhibit the JAK cascade, uh, again, trying to downregulate uh, immune responses or, or uh, tocilizumab in combination having an impact? Yeah, we participated early on um, in the uh, in the pandemic with uh, Regeneron's uh, IL-6 uh, monoclonal antibody, and that study was stopped uh, for futility. So I've never been that impressed. I, I look at the um, inflammatory cascade as a spider web with all kinds of feed-forward, feedback systems in it, and a lot of uh, genetic variability. Uh, hard to predict when you start messing around with it. But um, we have not uh, uniformly used it. Usually uh, we use barcitinib, and occasionally we will use uh, TOC. Um, but it is um, by far not a silver bullet. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And, and you're using the comment. I mean, these are people already on dexamethasone, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so in this hyperinflammatory phase, the thought is that there's excess cytokines and dysregulation that contributes to the severity. And of course, you know, I, I love Tim's uh, analogy to a spider web in the sense that it, it is organized. I mean, spider webs are very symmetrical, but there's there's a lot of components and sticky points, and anywhere you hit the web, you you might get stuck. But you you know, trying to get unstuck from that is not an easy um, pathway. And I'd have to say, although uh, the drugs we just talked about uh, certainly have a role and have lowered mortality and reduced length of stay and so on and so forth, it's really the supportive care that critical care doctors offer. Uh, that I think, uh, including going to ECMO even and, and so on, that uh, really have um, uh, probably done uh, as much as some of our medical interventions. Uh, Tim, is that your sense that uh, some of our uh, better care? Uh, I remember early on we tried to avoid intubating. We wanted to intubate patients early. <laughs> you know, that turned out not to be so good. Yes, I think um, I think. 
the sport of critical care is about just supported care and that anything we add on to that is uh, relatively small compared to an organized supported care approach. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I'm speaking as an infectious disease consultant um, there that, uh, you know, we like to think our, uh, our drugs uh, that help uh, viral infections make a difference. Uh, but it's really uh, the supportive care and the host immune responses that make such a difference. So uh, looking at immune responses to SARS-CoV-2, um, we've come to learn that, um, and this is not unique, uh, certainly EBV and others have uh, gone to ways of evading some of these early um, uh, host responses in an effort to try to corral the infection, such as uh, uh, really reducing the amount of type 1 interferon that's made. And this means that innate immunity uh, really hasn't uh, been engaged as much. Uh, and uh, why immunization is so important, because that's what's giving you that <clears throat> head start and immune responses, even if it's not a perfect match, to help avoid the kind of large and widespread viral infections um, that um, uh, help uh, seemingly trigger, especially in uh, uh, older patients and others, this hyperinflammatory phase. And as mentioned, uh, the, 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 the spike protein itself in SARS-CoV-2 has a great affinity for the ACE2 receptor. And indeed, the uh, Omicron subvariants seem to have increasing affinity, although, um, again, there's also additional factors in terms of predilections, uh, perhaps where uh, they actually appear most prevalent, although there have not been really exceptional studies uh, delineating this with the latest subvariants. But this tight binding, uh, it does seem to be the case and is one of the reasons why there's increased transmissibility of the latest subvariants. Uh, this is quite a busy slide, but um, generally uh, talks about what happens uh, age-wise. And of course, we all know infants are very susceptible to infection because they haven't really had maturation of um, uh, immune responses. They don't respond well to vaccines at early age and so on. Uh, but as uh, um, tolerance builds, um, as the thymus uh, changes, um, and certainly as you hit puberty, um, uh, there's uh, fewer T cell responses, but uh, generally um, uh, the effort of new or so-called naive T cells decreases dramatically over time. So we build up sort of a production of cells that have had uh, experiences, uh, whether they're uh, facing uh, normal antigen and protein structures in our body that uh, you don't want to react to unless you get autoimmune disease, or um, uh, they're organized uh, because of prior infections and so on. And also there's a similar drop in uh, B cells. And uh, all of these, um, including uh, the peripheral uh, and central lymph nodes, uh, just uh, generally are thought to be less responsive and don't move uh, quickly enough to sort of, um, you know, after an infection, they take a number of days to get activated and respond, even if there's memory cells. So that's why the innate immune system is so important uh, and could be leading to some of the dysregulation that we see in terms of cytokine um, 
responses that would otherwise guide cells to uh, places of infection and lead to viral clearance. Uh, <clears throat> when uh, T and B cells are um, responding to infection, um, uh, as someone uh, gets older, though, they do not respond as well. Certainly, if you're looking at adolescents and young adults, and this is uh, some of the thoughts why you don't see much severe disease at that stage of life. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, and it depends also on the virus itself and its uh, uh, speed. I mean, influenza is something that moves quite rapidly. It's one of the reasons that it probably uh, strikes elderly people uh, more with severe illness where you can have infection and uh, productive infection and even symptoms in a matter of a couple days. Uh, the coronavirus seems to uh, be slower, um, three to five days on average, uh, which you would think affords more time for the innate immune system, but it's figured out more immune evasive uh, features such as decreased interferon responses uh, that uh, really mean that you don't have, that, that extra time doesn't, hasn't bought people as much as you would hope. Um, the lung damage from uh, respiratory distress syndrome comes from the systemic inflammation. Uh, and uh, Tim, I just wanted to ask you, I'm sure you're, you, you know more about ARDS than I uh, ever uh, will, and uh, you may have uh, <clears throat> dealt with it on a, a far more of occasion. Are there, are there features that you find especially unique driven by SARS-CoV-2? Uh, compared to other coronaviruses, or or is it just that um, here we have such a monomorphic illness in such high numbers, um, we're able to study one type specifically due to one condition, and, and that's led to um, some of these therapeutic interventions that really hadn't panned out in the larger universe of ARDS? Well, I think it's the latter. Uh, you know, we haven't had that many um, um, non-COVID um, related uh, coronavirus ARDS cases. We had one uh, six months before the outbreak, and it was a severe case of ARDS with coronavirus not related to COVID. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, we have enough. I've always thought of uh, coronavirus as being the summer cold kind of virus, that it was kind of low low on the uh, toxicity side. Um, so I think, I think we've just seen a pandemic, and we don't get to see pandemics very often. So we've had millions of cases to look at. And, and then I think we have a, a pretty good idea about this disease. I did want to ask you, though, about uh, influenza and how we've changed our, our doses of vaccine for older patients uh, with mm -hmm. influenza. Is that part of this uh, uh, age-related uh, um, immunosenescence process? Yeah. Will we start yeah, yeah. to see the similar thing with COVID vaccinations? You know, it's interesting. Well, um, you know, whether uh, higher doses uh, would be called for in the COVID vaccines, you know, uh, meaning you get more spike production, uh, you know, and so on. It's an interesting one. Yes, uh, to answer your question, certainly, you know, uh, the high dose influenza vaccine, which uh, will be likely recommended and preferred for people over 65, drives higher uh, neutralizing antibody responses, and it does seem to enhance vaccine efficacy and reduce hospitalizations when it's been studied in the years that it's been studied. 
Um, Moderna, uh, as its mRNA, does seem to generate more spike protein. But, you know, the mRNA vaccines are interesting. I call them the Snapchat of vaccines because the RNA disappears rather quickly. The spike protein production doesn't last so much, which is one of the reasons I think boosting is so important to try to really make sure the immune system is seeing a, an amount of protein. Some have advocated, you know, we really need to adapt, you know, what we did with RNA uh, vaccines here to DNA because DNA will last longer. You'll make more spike protein and more robust immune responses. But I think that's going to be a non-starter because no one wants their DNA changed. And by injecting DNA, I think there's uh, more concern along that line, which of course is not the issue with RNA vaccines. So I think we've covered a, um, a, a very uh, uh, wide range of uh, aspects with regards to how our bodies deal with the coronavirus infection and some of the foibles that come about um, as we get older or have significant comorbidities in combination. We haven't really focused too much on the immunodeficient populations. Um, there, but uh, obviously by impairing uh, T and B cell responses, you just give much more latitude to the virus to make much more of it uh, before there's some efforts at the body in terms of uh, uh, mounting uh, responses. So again, in conclusion, immune senescence uh, deals with the aging immune system and its impact and the thought about inflammagene is that some of those uh, risk factors, diabetes, obesity, and so on, lead to chronic and low-grade inflammation that also advances with age and um, is something where you will see elevated inflammatory markers as well. This hyperinflammation, um, whether you like the term cytokine storm, I think many people are pivoting to just hyperinflammation rather than the storm, but does lead to severe immune uh, uh, responses and tissue damage, uh, which of course ARDS would be uh, the hallmark, but uh, can be multi-organ system as well. Uh, any immune response, especially in older adults, is uh, slower, less coordinated, and does make older adults more susceptible, all the more reason to try to be as proactive as possible and give the body an advantage by uh, providing boosting uh, to uh, existing responses uh, with additional vaccine doses. Um, and lastly, um, the hyperinflammatory response uh, definitely uh, has contributed to more death uh, more hospitalizations than the early direct viral cytotoxicity um, uh, that the, the virus certainly can trigger some symptoms, uh, but doesn't cause the uh, severe illness that we see in that second week, as opposed to the first week of symptoms. Uh, Tim, were there any other key points that you think you wanted to add as a takeaway from this presentation? No, Paul, I think you covered them all, and um, thank you for that excellent discussion. Well, thanks, Tim, for joining and uh, providing some uh, uh, clinical perspectives uh, as to why immune senescence is so important. I thank you for listening, and uh, please join us in the other segments of this program regarding uh, COVID-19 and uh, the changing uh, nature of the infection and uh, therapeutic responses, uh, as well as 
um, the role of monoclonal antibodies. Thanks so much for listening. This activity was brought to you by AKH Incorporated, advancing knowledge in healthcare, and the American Thoracic Society, and supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.